This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 183 for Monday, March 29, 2010. History of Astronomy, Part 1, The Ancient Astronomers. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos. We help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hi, Pamela. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Fraser. How are you doing? Doing very well. I, I was mentioning to you, but uh, I, I just got a sailboat. It's an old trailable <laughs> sailboat. I went down to the States and, and picked it up and brought it back, and now it's sitting on the lawn that will be wonderful for summer yeah exactly i've got about a hundred things to do to fix it up but you know other than that it's uh it should be fun so new hobby like i really need a new hobby but um and you live uh, where you can like see killer whales that's true yeah exactly i live with whales and dolphins and lakes and oceans and yeah exactly so you know i can put it to use is the plan so i I, i'm not trying to convince the wife to come out on the boat but the but kids the want to. Yeah, they want to. So I can trap them on the boat. And we're, we're trying to think of a name. My wife uh, suggested uh, Reason, which is actually, it's a snow crash reference. You're not going to get it. No. <laughs> but it's also, you know, skepticism and science. So anyway, I thought it was a good name. Anyway, we know you love a good series. And this time we're going to walk you through the history of astronomy, starting with the ancient astronomers and leading right up to the most recent discoveries. Today, we're going to start at the beginning with the astronomers who first tried to understand the true nature of the Earth, the planets, and our place in the cosmos. All right, Pamela, so let's set the way back machine. How, how far back would you like to go? Well, we, we can go all the way back to the, the first times that astronomy started cropping up in architecture because, well, writing came later. So I guess when you think about it, we don't know how early astronomy was actually happening, you know, and, and people might have made some very clever deductions about it, but it's only really right to the point where people started to record things, write them down. There aren't any cave paintings of astronomy, right? <laughs> no, not that. Well, Just, there aren't any um, cave paintings that are older than we, when we started seeing uh, astronomy in in buildings. There's out in Chaco Canyon. There's, I guess, cave carvings is a better term, mm-hmm. but those are fairly modern in terms of like Neanderthals drawing bison and <laughs> buffalo and yeah. other things they were planning to eat side by side with astronomy references. That we don't have. That would have been nice. So, all right. So then when did they first start to build it into their architecture? Well, the, the earliest reference I've been able to find was from the Napta Playa in Egypt. And I'm going to, as always, mispronounce many things in this episode. You, know, you um, shouldn't even apologize. Just do it. And then we can have the angry emails afterwards and we can tell them that, you know, we know better. Okay. That yeah. works. Yeah. So don't even, don't even, don't even apologize anymore. We're, uh, we're beyond that. <laughs> But back in 5000 BC, there was a large stone circle built in Egypt. And Egypt doesn't get enough play when it comes to stone circles. Everyone only pays attention to the ones in Northern Europe, mostly England. But the earliest one that I've been able to find references for was in Egypt. And it was a stone calendar circle that, depending on where you were standing, could be used to help predict uh, the differences in the seasons, which is in some ways the earliest thing you can start doing with astronomy. 
Right. And I guess that would have practical implications. They would use that to know when to plant or when the Nile was going to flood. Knowing when they were going to get flooded was kind of the most important thing back then. Right. Right. And so you would be able to, what, stand in the circle and cite the position of the sun and then use that to know approximately when you were in the year, when the seasons were going to start? One of the things they actually used more than just the sun and the moons was they tracked the rising and setting of sets of stars. There were certain key days of the year where they knew two specific constellations would be rising and setting. And based on when those constellations rose right after sunset or rose right before sunrise, they were, be, they were able to keep track of the year, keep track of, well, Sirius is coming up. That must mean, well, we're about to get flooded. And 5,000 years BCE, right? So that's 5,000 years before the Common Era. So that's like 7,000 years ago? Right. That's and a long it, time. It's so long ago that that part of Egypt, which is now one of the most arid deserts we have, I, it used to actually be lush and flood. So we're looking at things from so long ago that they were necessary because the climate was radically different. Hmm. All right. Well, let's move forward then. What's next? Well, in in the mid-3000s BCE, again, the Sumerians developed cuneiform. This was a written language that was made basically by stabbing the moral equivalent of a putty knife into a clay tablet to form letters and based on the shape of the stabbings. And there's really no better way to describe it other than someone with a very small, delicate putty knife stabbing letters into a a stone tablet or a clay tablet, rather. They, They were able to create language and they recorded numbers and astronomical records. Uh, They were the first ones to start coming up with a complex numerical system. They're the ones responsible for what's called sexagesimal, which is base 60 numbers. So when we look at circles, we have 360 degrees, which is six times 60. And each one of those degrees is broken up into 60 minutes. Each one of those minutes is broken up into 60 seconds. That base 60 insanity that we all learn to hate when we're first trying to do mathematical manipulations of time recordings, that's all due to the Sumerians. So we can lay that firmly on their shoulders and blame them. Total blame. Total blame goes to them. Great. But they were the first ones that started making recordings of what they saw in the sky. And so we can trace back the most ancient sunrise, sunset knowledge, the most ancient information on the planets back to the Sumerians. Cool. Next. Well, continuing still in the 3000s, we had the Egyptians started building pyramids. And they also developed the length of a year based on the sun. They were the ones who started figuring out the 365 and a quarter, which that quarter was kind of hard to figure out. And they based a lot of what they did on needing to know the rising time of Cirrus, the dog star. It was when Cirrus rose right before the sun rose that they knew that the time that the Nile was going to flood was coming quickly. This was called the inundation of the Nile. And so they they based many of their buildings on specific stars, uh, aligning the pyramids with Thuban, who at the time was the northern pole star, uh, aligning their buildings very precisely with midwinter sun falling down certain temples, hallways, and making sure that they always knew when to track Cirrus. But so like, this is like 5,000 years ago, there was a different pole star. 
Yes. Wow. And so when we're trying to figure out these ancient buildings, we actually have to take into account that our planet isn't a solid object that's precisely aligned, but rather like a spinning top, its pole is constantly precessing. And this precessing causes some buildings to align with the wrong object in modern days. Hmm. I, w- I wonder, you know, when you think about those those situations, you know, like Indiana Jones, where he goes into this temple and lines up the, uh, you know, the amulet with the yeah, with the it sun. Work. It wouldn't work, would it? Because the 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 Earth's wobble would would have it working in a different place. It would work on a different day, and so it would have pointed to the wrong location. So we have the precession of the equinoxes to worry about with the sun and the precession of the pole to worry about when we're trying to line up stars. And the stars are moving. Yes. Not fast, but, you know, some of them are moving. All of these things go into play. Now, the nice thing is that in modern science, all we do is we take our computers and (laughs) precess everything in the computer to get back to what the sky used to look like. And then you use laser pointers and GPS and you figure out what the alignments used to be. And it works. I think that should be some moment in some movie or TV show (laughs) where they're like, nothing's not not, lining up. Wait a second. Precess the Earth's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that would be yeah. fabulous. Yeah, exactly. Process the seat. Wait a second. Yeah, and then there it is. Yeah. That would be so much more interesting than yeah. some of the stuff yeah. they currently do. Because then you get the laptops out and you can yeah, have all the cool exactly. wires and yeah. laser pointers. And yeah, and then everyone recalculating. The no, you stand over there. That's where the sun sh- was. And then, you know, get right, the angle. Right. <laughs> all right. Okay. So um, we've talked about the Egyptians a lot. Now, what about, I know like around that time, I've even been there with Stonehenge. Yeah. So we're still trying to figure out exactly how Stonehenge was built and the orderings of the building. It's this very hard-to-date system because people didn't live there. There were huge artists' villages, huge workers' villages associated with the buildings of the pyramids. And that means that we have trash to carbon date. Stonehenge, there's a lot less trash to carbon date. And it's... Thus, more of a debate. So somewhere between 3000 BCE and 2000 BCE, construction started on Stonehenge. And we're still trying to sort out all the things you can do with this amazing set of rocks. But it was clear that they knew how to track the moon cycles, track the sun cycles, track the seasons. And thus, midsummer still lines up. The date of midsummer has, is always shifting slightly, but midsummer still lines up. You can still watch the sun rise between the stars. With a computer, you can figure out what stars line up with different days. And then there's the different stone holes that you can use to track, well, here are how the lunar cycle and the solar cycle line up across enough years. If you wait long enough, you can get a full moon and the sun lining up on the same day again in the future. It doesn't happen all the time. But if you wait long enough, and there's ways to calculate that waiting long enough using the Amory holes at Stonehenge, it's, it's an amazing calculator that we're still working to figure out. And it was just one of many stone circles built during that period. It's just the biggest and most famous. But it's amazing that they, I guess they built such a such an enormous structure. I mean, if you've ever, I don't know if you've seen it. I, I we yeah. visited it about uh, ten years ago, and it is 
mind-bogglingly large. I mean, these these stones are gigantic. And you can imagine how far they had to move them and how they lifted them up. And, God, you know, it must have been aliens that did it. But anyway. <laughs> well, what's amazing is it's at a fork in the highway and there's a sheep farm. So you're standing at Stonehenge watching these giant lorries go by and surrounded by sheep, which <laughs> is just the most amusing yeah. thing I've ever seen. But, yeah, no one knows quite how they moved these stones because they were many ton rocks and very precisely carved given the point in history when they were being moved. It's it's a huge, huge mystery that we're still trying to sort out. And there's other examples of tens of ton stones lifted up as much as eight feet off the ground and balanced on other stones in other different uh, stone things that were built throughout that period. But, but wasn't a lot of work being done in China at the same time too? And and the Chinese weren't so busy moving rocks. That's, that's the neat thing. Now, you do actually have to wait about a thousand years to get to the Chinese. So around 1300 BCE, the Chinese started writing astronomy down. Chinese had an amazing language dating back thousands of years. And it was during the Wuding Empire, the Bronze Age of China, that they actually started writing down catalogs of stars, writing down the constellations, writing down the sun's position in the different houses of the constellations. So this is where we start getting our first written records uh, of another culture. So we started getting some written records from the Sumerians, and then the Chinese start writing things down in the 1300s as well. Hmm. But that wasn't really the highlight of the, of the Chinese astronomy. I know they did a lot more work Right. More recently, but, you know, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get to that in, a, in yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Have a few more thousand years to creep through first. Yeah. So where, where to next then? Well, now we skip over to Babylonia. So in 1200 BCE, the Babylonians started creating star charts that we think were probably actually passed down from Sumerian astronomy, but much many fewer tablets survived from the Sumerians. But from the Babylonians, uh, we have tablets that are called the three stars each. And these tablets divided up the sky into a northern section, an equatorial section, and a southern section, such that the sun spent equal parts of the year in each of these three regions of the sky. And then they divided the sky up further into sets of three bright stars, each defined their own constellations. This was all working towards building up major sets of constellations. So it starts with the three stars each, because three was an important number to them, and the dividing of the sky up into three sections. And they also, at this period, started making careful records of the sun rising positions on the horizon over time. And a lot of the names that we even know today have Babylonian origins, right? Right. And and thus, in turn, probably have some Sumerian origins as well. And in some cases, uh, the constellations that they came up with, not necessarily in 1200, but a few hundred years later in about 1000 uh, BCE, these 
particular names got retranslated so that the Babylonians had the constellation of the lion and the Greeks just renamed it into Leo and they had Scorpius. They just called it the Scorpion except in Babylonian. Mm -hmm. So we have many constellation names as well date back to the Babylonians and Sumerians and then just got stolen and translated into Greek and then we kept the Greek names. And the, the Babylonians got a pretty good handle on the planets too, didn't they, at that point? It, it was actually more around 1,000 that they started getting a, a better record of, of the planets. So around 1,000, you had the Mul Apin, which detailed all sorts of new zodiacal stations is what they called them. What? What new they, they called them zodiacal stations. They didn't quite have constellation. And oh, right. Okay. So these zodiacal stations... These were places where the sun passed through sets of stars. And just as you might talk about having stations in a church, they had stations in the sky. And the sun paused, it didn't pause, but it passed through one set of stars, one zodiacal station before passing on to the next. Right. And I mean, they were pretty big into astrology as well. So they yes. they had a lot of meaning and, you know, and lore associated with the different times that the sun was going through these stations. And, and what's interesting looking at these is because the Earth was aligned somewhat different back then, they actually had the sun at vernal equinox close to the Pleiades. And that that's not something we would consider part of the zodiacal constellations nowadays. But the sky was just a little bit differently aligned, and that made a difference. They also didn't have Aries yet. Uh, so back then, it was very much the age of Taurus with the sun passing through Taurus. It was a very different way of looking at things. So they looked at Taurus marking the vernal equinox with the sun close to the Pleiades. They had Leo marking the summer solstice, the lion. They had the scorpion, Scorpius, marking out the autumnal equinox. And um, the goatfish, Capricorn, marking out the winter solstice. Altogether, they had 71... Um, stars involved in the constellations of the three ways of the three stars each and then they built on that building out all of these zodiacal stations as well they looked to mark time by seeing which constellations rose and set simultaneously so if mm. you have a specific pair doing something and you know what night of the year it is you know what time it is so they had tables that allowed them to tell what time it was even at night just by knowing the date of the year they were very careful about transcribing the path of the moon and the planets. This is the first data that was of high enough quality that you could start using it mathematically. And they paid attention to when the planets were at solar conjunction and how long they stayed there. This is when the planets disappeared into the day. All of these things, they, they recorded things very carefully using gnomon sticks to mark the shadows and check the angle of the sun and very carefully transcribing the length of night during the year. So did they have any kind of concept like modern? Like what did they think was the nature of this? Did they think like the earth was, you know, flat or the center of the center of the universe and, you know, that kind of old model? Do they still have that? They, they actually didn't record a lot of their cosmology, but one of the things that does date back to them is the idea that our Earth is just 
one of many planets orbiting in one of many different heavens. They didn't really have orbits, but one of many planets in many heavens. And to them, the center of the universe was, well, where the deity was, which is separate from the idea of the earth or the sun being the center of anything. That's, it's interesting that they had all of that data, but, and they, they had a sort of, they didn't make the conceptual leap of, of the earth going around the sun, even though they were okay with the earth not being the center of the universe. Well, what's interesting is they didn't actually look for geometric solutions. What they did instead was they looked for mathematical solutions. We know that Venus appears in the sky every X days as an evening star, and here is its mathematical pattern of behaviors. Take that frequency, predict forward based on those numbers. And as soon as you don't try and instill geometry on planetary positions, things become much easier to deal with, actually. And so they looked at the ratios. They looked at the periods that things recurred over and over in the sky. And so it it was just a very different way of looking at things. It was the what are the ratios versus what is the geometry. Now, was there uh, any of this work being done in the Americas? I mean, there were civilizations and great buildings built in the Americas as well. So around 1000 BC, we also had uh, in Chaco Canyon, they they didn't yet have a a written language among the Anasazi people in the United States, but they did have the ability to carve. And there are many different pictographs left in rocks all over the American Southwest and in the Rocky Mountain area. So in these pictographs, what they're able to find are places where they align stones such that shadows were cast on symbols in the rocks on special days of the year. There's a, in particular one sun dagger in Chaco Canyon where on the equinoxes you have a dagger of sunlight appearing on the swirling pattern that appears one way for solstice, one way for equinoxes, and another way for the other solstice of the year. So you can see it bounce from summer solstice to winter solstice, passing through an intermediate step for the equinoxes. And these alignments only occur at local noon on these specific days. It was a way of marking the year just by looking at the sun's shadow. Right, right. So it's that same that same tool. You can see that the first real practical use of astronomy was to to be able to plot, you know, when to harvest, when to plant, when to, you know, when are the rivers going to flood, and and when do we need to be on the ball for all that. So it's quite. Right. It's always that same tool around the world. Okay, well let's keep uh, let's keep rolling. What's your your next stage in innovation in in ancient astronomy? Well, the the most important records actually started coming around 700 BC. This was during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, another Babylonian area ruler. He ruled from 747 to 734 BC, and he drove his astrologers, astronomers, call them what you will, to very carefully make recordings, make measurements. Looking through the records that the Babylonians already had, It was during his reign that people figured out the Saras cycle, the way 
eclipses return almost to the same place every 18 and a bit years, allowing us to, to watch the eclipses move across the planet over time. It was during his reign that the Venus tablet was created. It was a copy of 2000 BC records that allowed people to very precisely know when Venus would be appearing and disappearing from the night sky. He made science and math, and it was records from during his reign that Ptolemy said started the modern mathematical age of astronomy. These were the first accurate records that could be used by, in fact, Ptolemy and others to sort out, well, how do we mathematically figure out all the planets? Ptolemy was trying to use these records to come up with geometrical solutions, which just didn't quite work, but it was a good start. And it was because of Nebuchadnezzar that we have those records spanning thousands of years. So thanks to the Babylonians. Yeah, they, they did a lot of amazing work. Unlike the ancient Sumerians. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I think we're 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 closing. We're nearing the end here because I think we're gonna we're gonna save all of the Greek stuff for the next for the next show. Were there any more kind of significant developments in in astronomy before before we get to the Greeks? I the only last thing I'd point out was 400 BC. We had from the Chinese uh, two competing astronomers who each worked to uh, develop star charts. We had Shea Shen who had a star chart of 212, and uh, he was the first person to start recording sunspots. Now he thought that these were um, eclipses that were starting to spread out and just never succeeded, but he did record sunspots. He just didn't understand them. Um, but back then, the Chinese hmm. also were concerned that solar eclipses were caused by dragons eating the sun. So when you're looking for the wrong reasons for eclipses, it's easy to make that mistake. I, I still um, worry about that today. But, <laughs> but right, but that's kind of that's kind of a neat idea, right? You look at the sun, you know, and then you see a black spot on the sun, and you can imagine that that's what causes causes an eclipse. But they they must have started to figure out that that eclipses were caused by the moon passing in front. Well, they just weren't recording that excuse yet. Right. Um, it, right. It's much more interesting to have a dragon consuming it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this was still 400 BC. Yeah. But in competition with Shea Shen, we had Jean Di, who... Um, he was one of the first one to first people to start doing detailed observations of Jupiter. And one of the coolest things about what he did was Jupiter's moons... The moons are actually naked eye viewable, but we normally don't see them because the glare of Jupiter itself blocks them out. And it's said that Jean D blocked out the light of Jupiter with a tree branch so he could observe the moons. Whoa. Isn't that kind of cool? Yeah. If the, you know, I mean, if the, if the records are true, that's, that's pretty amazing. So it it's just a a bit of history that somehow got lost from our modern records. Because I you know I have a shot I've I've tried to spot them with binoculars and I still haven't been able to do it. So maybe I need to like line up a tree in front of my binoculars so that I just cover up the, the moon, right? So what you want to do is actually get Jupiter just off the very edge of your binocular field of view, right? And then you'll and, be able to see any moons on that side. Yes. So just. Get it just off your field of view and then circle it so that it stays just off your field of view going all the way around it. 
and then you can check all sides for moons. That's cool. Okay. All right. Well, I think we're done with the ancient folk, but the next step, I think one of the most exciting ones is when we get to the Greeks and around that that period, because it's quite amazing how many of the things that we now know were uncovered by the Greeks and then you know, later forgotten, but... <laughs> <laughs> but, but they were first discovered and, and written down and recorded. And, and it, it's amazing that even 2,000 years ago, people were were that modern. You know, they thought about things in that very careful way and had the math to, to back it up. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, thanks a lot, Pamela. And we'll, uh, and we'll talk to you for the next show. Okay. Sounds great. This has been Astronomy Cast, a weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos. Show notes and transcripts for every episode are available on our website. Check it out at astronomycast.com. You can send us any comments, questions, or feedback to info at astronomycast.com. We read every email. The show is a nonprofit educational resource provided by Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. We're supported through the kind donations of listeners like you. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. taxpayers. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend it to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Music is provided by Travis Searle. The show was edited by Preston Gibson. Astronomy Cast is produced at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, with generous support from Universe Today. 